I'm Jack Semlicka, and welcome to this episode of our 2018 Strip-Till Farmer Podcast Series. Today's program, a strip-tiller's checklist for understanding the health of your soil, is being brought to you by TopCon Agriculture. If this is your first time tuning in, you can subscribe to this series and get updates on future episodes currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Or if you prefer another app for listening to podcasts, let us know and we'll look to get it added. Thanks again to TopCon Agriculture for its support of this podcast series. Agronomy matters and TopCon Agriculture application solutions make it work. From planning to precision machine control, NORAX boom height control, monitoring and mapping to data management, you have the total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. Find out how to make the most of your 4R nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use. Visit them at topconpositioning.com slash growing solutions. And I'd like to extend the invite for you to join us at the 5th Annual National Strip Tillage Conference coming up on June, July 26th and 27th in Iowa City, Iowa. The 2018 event will feature a mix of general sessions, classrooms, and roundtable discussions on topics and trends specific to strip-till. For more information and to register for the event, visit striptillconference.com. Well, it's been said, you can't manage what you can't measure. For strip-tillers, getting an accurate read on soil health is key to prescribing the right remedy for nutrient-deficient areas. Building a thriving, well-rounded ecological environment starts with establishing a baseline measurement to build on. Dr. Kristen Vume, research soil scientist with the USDA's Agricultural Research Service in Columbia, Missouri, has studied assessment of soil quality in agroecosystems, development and refinement of soil quality indicators, and application of sensor technology for soil quality assessment. On a national level, she's collaborating with the new Soil Health Institute, the NRCS Soil Health Division, and other ARS scientists on measurements and standards for nationwide soil health assessment. In today's Strip-Till Farmer podcast brought to you by TopCon Agriculture, Kristen shares ongoing research and initiatives to include ways to enhance soil microbiology and a forecast on future opportunities and obstacles to increasing soil health in conservation tillage systems. So I'm gonna talk a lot about what I do as a research soil scientist with the Agricultural Research Service, which is the research arm, sort of the sister agency of the NRCS. Now just to give you a little bit of perspective on where I'm coming from as a soil scientist, uh, this is sort of how I look at things. So I'm focused on what's happening below ground, but obviously what's happening below ground has a lot to do with what's happening above ground. And I've been a bench chemist, you might say, for 27, almost 28 years. I started doing lab work when I was a senior in high school, so you can do the math and figure out how old I am. But what I do is try to come up with lab methods and ways of interpreting lab data so that we can understand soil health. And you guys that are here in the audience, I consider you the end user of what I do. And so I'm really excited to come to producer workshops and, and interact, uh, interact with you. So soil health has been in the news a lot lately. I think you all know about the new NRCS Soil Health Division, and they have soil health specialists spread across the country now. And they're really gearing up for a soil health 
assessment on a nationwide level. There's also the Soil Renaissance, which turned into the Soil Health Institute. Now it's with the Farm Foundation and some other um, agencies. There's the Soil Health Partnership, that's National Corn Growers. There's the Foundation for Food and Agriculture Research. They have an initiative on uh, healthy soils and thriving farms. And then the Nature Conservancy has a, a soil health initiative. And there are a lot more that you can find in the news. So what is soil health? And if you start looking at definitions for soil health, they're usually pretty broad. And this is the one that I like to use, but the NRCS has an, a definition, the FAO has a definition, but they all kind of come back to the same basic principles. And that is the function of the soil system. And then it includes something usually uh, focused on the biological activity or the biological productivity of the soil. And we want to focus on soil function, and sometimes people say, well, what is, what is soil function? Well, soil functions are the things that the soil is doing that we care about, the services that the soil is providing for us. And then the reason we're focused on biological measurements in soil or biological productivity is because even though we may have known for a long time that soil biology was important, we didn't necessarily have the tools to measure soil biology, and now we do, and we're developing new methods all the time, and so we're trying to bring that together with the traditional approach of measuring soil uh, quality. So this is my interpretation of the history of soil health. It all came out of soil conservation, and we all know about the Dust Bowl in the 1930s. And then in 1935, Congress passed the public law and they established the Soil Erosion Service, which later became the Soil Conservation Service, and is now the NRCS. Then in the 40s, there was a book called Plowman's Folly, and there were other uh, writings that came out during that time that criticized intensive farming practices. And then in the 50s through the 70s, there was a lot of pressure to conserve soil and water resources. And again, that was really focused on keeping soil on the landscape, reducing erosion. So it was all about the quantity of the soil and keeping the soil in place. And then in the 1990s, people really started researching soil quality and, and what we now call soil health. And that was looking at the characteristics of the soil, not just the amount of soil. But at the same time, there were several arguments that, that kind of came out against the soil health concept, because at the time, it really was just that, it was a concept. People were concerned about the fact that maybe this is too qualitative and not quantitative enough. It's just too descriptive, we can't you know, wrap our minds around it. You know, what are we talking about here? And we know that soil use varies. So if we're not using the soil for the same thing, then how does that factor into your assessment of soil health? We also know that soils are not the same. On one field, the soil may have certain characteristics down the road or in the next state. Soils may be very different. So how do you factor that in? And then soil function, going back to the services that the soil is providing for us, there are many different soil functions, and so which one do you choose? What do you emphasize? What is it that you're trying to optimize? That third line there, measurable and interpretable, those are the things that I work on a lot. So we have to be able to measure it, right? And as a laboratory scientist, I spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to best measure things. And then interpretable, so if we measure it, that's fine, but if we can't interpret it, it's not very useful. And then the last issue, any time that you're doing something new, there are always socioeconomic and then regulatory concerns that, that people have. You know, where, where is this all going? So it's my job to take 
soil health from a concept to a science. And I'm building on several decades of, of research that other scientists, a lot of ARS scientists, uh, have been doing since the 1990s. So how does this work? Well, like I said, we have our soil functions, and we want to select those things that we can measure in the soil, and we break those into the three basic categories, the chemical, the biological, and the physical. And we pick these things because they, these measurements, because they relate back to those ecosystem services or soil functions. And some examples would be you know, soil conservation, soil productivity, and then a host of different environmental protection services that the soil provides. This is an example of one study that um, I conducted with some of my college, colleagues back in 2008. And we, you know, we measured everything under the sun just because we can. But you can see where we have a breakdown of the biological, chemical, and physical soil properties. Now, a lot of people want to know what's the difference between soil health and soil fertility. And I say soil fertility is a part of soil health. It's a very integral part of soil function and, and soil productivity. And so we're not, we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. So if you see on this list of some soil health measurements, and these are measurements that I commonly use in my lab, in my assessments, the ones I circled in red are the ones that you're probably the most familiar with. Those are the traditional uh, measurements that you might get from a fertility lab. So it includes things like phosphorus, potassium, and pH, and then you may be familiar with organic matter. But then what we've done is we've expanded upon that. We now have some new physical measurements, as well as a, a pretty wide range of soil biological measurements. So if we're going to develop a soil health assessment, these are the basic steps that we're going through. And this is a process. This is a process that we're involved in now. We're still working on this. So this is, this is not a, uh, an end product yet. So the first thing we have to do is, as scientists is pick those soil functions and then the lab measurements that we think link back to those, those functions. And then the second step is to select the laboratory method. And you know, when I say this, people kind of roll their eyes or like, yeah, whatever. You know, who cares about the lab method? And since that's what I do, I focus on that quite a bit. And I'm sure many of you have sent soil samples off for standard fertility testing. And you may not think at all about the method that's behind that, but methods vary. So how many of you have sent soils off for standard fertility testing? Most of you, right. Have you ever sent samples to different labs at the same time? Or, yeah. And so some people will notice that maybe the, the, the results are not the same. And in large part, that's often due to differences in the methodology. So the methods matter, right? And then after we have the methods, then we have to figure out how those laboratory values actually relate back to soil function. So we have to quantify that. You know, we, we can just assume that more is better, right? But how much better? And there's that the law of diminishing returns. So if you have 3% organic matter, is that enough? Is it, do you need 10%? I mean, where are those thresholds, right? And then the last thing, which is uh, sometimes over, overlooked, but we need to quantify the effects of management and how management affects those measurements so that we can provide recommendations. 
because we can give you all the data in the world, but if we can't tell you what it means and then what to do about it, again, it's not very useful. So to start with that first step on soil functions, this is a list of some broad soil functions. And from the soil health perspective, you, you really have to accept that all of these things are important. You know, as, as producers, number five, crop productivity is probably at the top of your list. But if you look at number one, that's water flow and retention. You know, that relates to crop productivity, but it's also important for other reasons. Physical stability, nutrient retention, cycling, biodiversity, and environmental remediation. So these are all soil functions that as soil health scientists we're trying to, to bring together. This is just another example of soil functions, but looking at it from a process-oriented perspective. So you can kind of break these things into categories like chemical reactivity, nutrient availability, general biological activity and, and substrate for the microorganisms in the soil, water partitioning, organic nitrogen, and then the, the microbial community. And I'll talk a little bit more about some of these categories later. So what is a good soil health indicator? So how do we, how do we pick those indicators? Well, it needs to be meaningful, right? And it has to reflect soil function. So I've said that a few times already. But then you also need to think about sensitivity. So if we're measuring something, and you know, after 10 or 20 years of improved management, and you, you, know, you, you switched to no-till, you added cover crops, you're doing all these things, and 10 or 20 years later, you still don't see a change in this particular measurement, then maybe it's not a very useful soil health indicator. On the flip side of that, you can have an indicator that varies really rapidly based on just changes in daily temperature or rainfall. So that might be too sensitive to environmental conditions. So you want to find something that's going to be sensitive to the changes and the improvements that producers are making on their land. So if you're looking at producers, you might say, you know, three to five years. I mean, as producers, if you're sending off, let's say you decide to switch your management today. You decide to go to reduce tillage, and then you add cover crops. If you're sending in samples to a soil health lab, how quickly do you want to see a change? Typically, we're shooting for something that's going to be sensitive to maybe three to five years change in management. Now, obviously, that there are a lot of other factors that are involved there. It depends on your soil type. It depends on where you started, where you're going. But that would be, I think, an ideal time frame. And then, of course, we have to make sure that it's something we can really measure and that it's affordable. I'll talk a little bit more about that. And then interpretable. So when we select methods, and I'm talking about methods that we're hoping ultimately a service lab is going to make available to producers like yourselves, right? Not talking about some of the fancy stuff that we do in the, on the research side. But you have to think about the equipment costs and the required skill level. So, you know, it doesn't make much sense to recommend a method that's going to require, you know, a $20,000 GC or a $200,000 mass spec, right? And then if the skill level required to actually go through that process in the lab, you, know, you, you have to hire somebody with like a PhD in phase extraction or something like that, it, it may not be uh, really feasible. 
and then all the consumables and the labor that go into that method. And at the end of the day, there's a trade-off. You have to balance the cost of measuring that with the interpretability. What are you getting out of it? Like, what is that end product? And what can you do with that information once you have it? So these are just some general costs on soil health analyses. And this is not from any particular lab. I just put this together from my own experience. There are several labs across the country that offer these tests. And you might come across different prices. But my point is that you start adding all these together, you know, it starts adding up pretty quickly. So when you guys send in your soil samples, whether it's for fertility testing or for soil health analyses, who's, who's paying for that? Is somebody paying for your testing? You, you are, right, right. And I know there, there are some programs out there, a lot of programs out there now. Uh, Missouri, where I'm from, there are a lot of state programs and some federal programs that are uh, either partially or totally subsidizing uh, soil health testing. Um, but who, who funds those programs? Right, you do. <laughs> so um, when, I, when I talk about you know, budget and cost, some of my colleagues that are more on the research side, um, maybe in the university, that are not necessarily in a position like mine, um, you know, roll their eyes at me when I start talking about some of these uh, tests that I'm, I'm evaluating in the lab that are cheaper than something really fancy and sophisticated. But we have to keep this in mind, right? So if we go just through some of these tests, and I'm sure other speakers have talked a lot about some of these things, but um, basic chemical reactivity, nutrient availability, these are the things we're the most familiar with, right? Then we also get into some of the physical properties, and we call that you know, physical, and water partitioning is one of the, the primary things that we're concerned about when we talk about soil physical properties. Not the only thing, but it, it's really important. And so water partitioning is just when the rain falls, where is it going? So you're partitioning it. Is it, is it running off? Is it going into the soil? You know, where is it going? And a lot of that is dictated by soil properties such as aggregate stability, bulk density, soil texture, things like this. On the soil microbiology side, we have potentially up to a billion soil microbes just in one tablespoon of soil, and that's a lot. And when I give talks to high school students, I play this little game with them where I ask them to see how high they can count in their heads for 30 seconds. And they can usually, you know, the, the, the fastest one can usually get up to maybe 150 or something like that. And then I tell them that, okay, so if you were counting a billion soil microbes, at that rate, it would take you about six and a half years to get to a billion. And that would be with no breaks and no recess, nothing like that. And I go through that exercise just because sometimes it's difficult for us to wrap our minds around what a billion really is. It's a huge number. And so in the soil, we have all these microbes. There's bacteria, fungi, yeast, protozoa, algae, nematodes, all kinds of things. So why do we care about all of these microbes? And it's primarily because the microbes are the ones that are responding very rapidly to changes in their environmental conditions. So they're the little harbingers of, of what's, what's happening. And they're very good indicators, very good at indicating rapid changes in soil. So the chemistry and the physics of the soil provide the context. And that's the habitat in which the microbes are living. 
We'll get back to Kristen's discussion shortly, but I wanted to once again thank our sponsor, TopCon Agriculture, for making this podcast series possible. Agronomy matters, and TopCon Agriculture application solutions make it work. From planning to precision machine control, NORAX boom height control, monitoring and mapping, to data management, you have the total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. Find out how to make the most of your 4R nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use. Visit them at topconpositioning.com slash growing solutions. Well, Kristen touched on the differences soil use, characteristics, and function can have on how strip tillers manage the health of their soils. Creating uniform soil structure is an objective to assist with even crop emergence, but being able to recognize and react to variables in the field is key. Kristen noted the need to not only be able to measure soil health indicators, but to also interpret them and make informed decisions that will positively impact plant and soil health. Let's get back to the program now. Hear more from Kristen Bume on her checklist for measuring soil biology. So when I'm approaching measurements for the soil biology, this is how I think about it. I break it up into these three categories. So what are the, what are the questions that we want to know? Well, we usually start with how many. So you can think of that as like a, a population or a census. How many microbes are there? And so we can do that by measuring something called microbial biomass, or we can use total phospholipid fatty acids. Those are two of the most common ones. But once we have a handle on how many microbes are there, then we want to know who's there. So who are they? So like, I can go through and I can count the number of people in this room, but maybe I want to know a little bit more about the demographics. You know, how many of you are raising different kinds of crops, or how many of you are you know, strip tillers versus something else, right? So we want to know more about who's there. We call that microbial community structure, and we can get at that by looking at the soil uh, microbial DNA, so we can actually pull the microbial DNA out of the soil and sequence it and, and identify the organisms that way. We can also do what I mentioned earlier, that phospholipid fatty acid analysis. And I know of at least two service labs across the country right now that are offering that uh, to producers. And with that, you don't get something that's species specific, but you get some broad microbial categories. And from that, you can infer something about the microbes that are, that are there. This last one, this is the one that I'm the most interested in. This is what I spent most of my time thinking about. And that is, what are they doing? So just because the microbes have the genetic potential to do something, so the DNA is there, it doesn't mean they're actually doing it. right? So these genes get turned on and off, and their activity levels change. So we want to know, what are those guys really up to in the soil? And that's where we start measuring enzymes things like soil respiration. So if we're interested then in the general biological activity in the carbon food source, the things that relate to that that we measure, organic matter, soil respiration, active carbon, particulate organic matter, enzymes. So I threw all these up here because I think you're probably going to start seeing more of these kinds of um, indicators or analyses available through different labs. I already know of several that are offering some, if not all, of these. But soil respiration 
is an, is an important one. So again, I can, I can count all of you that are in the room, and I could measure your activity level right now, and it might be low because you know, you're sitting and it's right before lunch, but then if I asked you all to stand up and start doing jumping jacks, would you, would you all do it? I don't know, but your activity level would change. So the population count has stayed the same, the uh, community structure, the genetic potential has stayed the same, but now all of a sudden your activity level is very different. So that's why we are interested in that. And microbial enzymes is another way to look at microbial activity. So there are all these enzymes that we can measure, and they all relate back to different nutrients and nutrient cycles. So if we're interested in phosphorus, we might measure phosphatase, uh, aryl sulfatase for sulfur, you know, things like that. For organic nitrogen supply, we look at potentially mineralizable nitrogen. And this one's kind of tricky. So we know that organic matter in the soil has the potential to supply nitrogen to plants during the growing season. And what we'd all really like to be able to do someday is to measure that and then use it as a credit against our fertilization, you know, our nitrogen application. Um, but the difficulty we run into there is that the, the timing of when the microbes are releasing it in the soil and mineralizing it and making it plant available is not necessarily when the plant wants it. So we haven't really been able to achieve that yet, but maybe someday. So for microbial community structure and diversity, like I said, we have DNA, we have the phospholipid fatty acids, That's, that gives you the broader groups. We can also do things like pathogen bioassays. But the, the key here then is the cost and the interpretation. And so costs on things like DNA and sequencing are rapidly coming down, but they're still, still pretty uh, high up there. So when we're sampling for soil health analysis, and, and you guys are familiar with, you know, you think these things through before you collect your samples, right? So, you know, why, why are you sampling? And that's gonna dictate a lot of what you do with your soil sampling. So when are, when are you gonna collect your sample? Because with soil biology, there is a stronger Im impact of that temporal variability or these seasonal changes, right? So if you're sampling in the fall versus the spring or in the middle of the growing season, that can have an effect. Where are you sampling? So there's an issue with spatial variability that's always been an issue, but in particular for soil biology, you really wanna think about you know, where you're sampling within a field and the management. So if you have different management imposed, you, know, you don't wanna necessarily mix those samples and then depth. And then how are you sampling? So with some of these soil biological measurements, we have to be really careful about how that soil sample is handled after you pull it out of the ground. If you're gonna measure phospholipid fatty acids, you have to send that sample to the lab overnight. You can't let it sit around you know, on the dashboard of your truck or on your kitchen counter for a week and then send it off. Some of the work that I've done, I've found that just letting a sample sit for two weeks at room temperature in a bag, still moist, you can lose you know, half of the fungal markers and 30%, you know, 10 to 20, 30% of the other bacterial markers. So that's a big deal. And it's also on the, on the lab side a consideration that we have to think about if we're wanting to recommend a method for a service lab. Because how realistic is it that a producer is gonna 
be able to collect a sample and get it to the lab in a timely fashion. So we try to pick methods that are more robust to some of the handling uh, effects that they might experience. And so for field scale variability, you know, you look at this, this is actually a, an EC map, an electrical conductivity map, but it just shows that it, within one field, you can have dramatic differences from one place to another. And so if you're sampling, and you, you collect a sample in that red zone one year, and then you come back and collect your sample in the blue zone the next year, you may see a big difference, and is that really due to your management, or is that just due to where you decided to collect your sample? So you want to think about the landscape, you want to think about if you have erosional areas or depositional areas, and then think about what your question is. What is it you really want to know about that field? And then pick a place that you're going to sample, and then stick with it. And I said depth was important, and that's particularly important with soil biology, because the organic matter is concentrated near the surface, and that's where all the soil microbes are, that's where the activity is. That surface layer, that's the interface with the atmosphere. So if you're collecting a sample of zero to six inches, you don't want to compare that to a sample that you collected zero to 12 inches, because again, that difference may just be due to the depth of sampling and not really the answering the question that you want to answer. The rhizosphere, that's the part, that's the soil that's right there next to the plant root. Okay, and if you know a lot about soil microbes, you know that they're getting a lot of their, their food from the plant roots. So the roots are exuding all these carbohydrates into the soil, the microbes, it's like the buffet line, they come up and they're consuming that. So where do you find most of the soil microbes? Right there next to the plant root. So again, if you're sampling, doing a soil sampling, and you sample right next to a plant where you're capturing the rhizosphere soil, and then you sample like between rows where there are no plants, again, you might see a big difference just in, in those samples. So you gotta think about those things. So how do we interpret? all this soil health data. So what we want to do ultimately is to be able to take the lab data and convert it into something like a grade or a score, something that's more interpretable. Because if you send me a sample and I measure glucosidase activity and I come back and say, hey, your sample had you know, 200 you know, micromoles of PNP per gram per hour and yours had 30, you know, what does that really mean? And you know, you have to be able to interpret this lab data. And then if you can interpret it, then it's gonna help you prioritize your management decisions. So that's why we, we want to do this. The index that I like to use the most is called the Soil Management Assessment Framework. And this was developed going back to the 90s by several ARS scientists and some of their colleagues. And it takes these biological, physical, and chemical lab measurements and it transforms them, it's, it scores them. So it converts them into a number, like a percentage between um, zero and 100%. And what that means is if, if you get a score of 100%, then your soil is functioning at 100% of its potential for that particular indicator and the function that it relates to. But if you get a score of 50%, what does that tell you? There's room for improvement, right? So within this particular uh, index, 
We have on the biological side, we have organic carbon, mineralizable nitrogen, glucosidase activity, microbial biomass. Physical side, we can do bulk density, aggregate stability. And on the chemical and nutrient side, we have the standard things like pH, P and K, um, sodium absorption ratio if you're out, out west and that's important to you. But this is what I really like about the soil management assessment framework. And it's the only index that comprehensively accounts for soil taxonomy, texture, slope, and climate on the front end. So beginning of my talk, I was saying something about how we know that soils differ from each other. The soils have some inherent differences, and so you can't expect one soil to necessarily do as well as another soil, like an alpha sol versus a molosol. So the, the, the SMAF, as we call it, Soil Management Assessment Framework, takes this information, all this site-specific information, you know, the soil taxonomy, the texture, all of that, puts it in on the front end, and then you add the lab data and it scores it. So you're accounting for all those inherent differences up front. Now, uh, the, I will say that the Cornell Soil Health Assessment was based on this particular approach, and so they regionalized it for New York and their area, and then recently they've expanded that to include uh, more states towards the Midwest. So what I did is I, I took um, several of these studies that we've done in Missouri and I put them together into what I call the agricultural continuum of soil health, from higher to lower, because really it is a continuum, right? And I put the breaks between perennial and annual cropping systems, and then within that, the, the different management practices that tend to dictate whether you have higher or lower scores. Now, obviously, there are several factors that go into this, but I just wanted to illustrate that you know, within perennial systems, the things that tend to dictate your soil health scores there would be the vegetation type. So what is the vegetation? And then are you removing that vegetation? So biomass removal, harvesting is going to uh, reduce some of the, is gonna pull some of the nutrients out, right? And it's gonna end up reducing some of those scores. And then on the annual cropping system side, that's that same pattern that's uh, dictated by disturbance and crop diversity. So on the, the regional and, and national research side, there are a lot of initiatives in place now to come up with uh, both regional and national soil health assessments. So I use, like I said, I use this math, but there are still a lot of gaps in the data in order to make that fully comprehensive. And there are some additional indicators and lab measurements that we want to add to that to make it also more comprehensive. So we're in the process now of, of looking at different methods and protocols, things that we can add to that assessment. And in order to do that, one of the things we need to do is develop regional databases. So we really understand what the range of soils are within an area and what the potential is in that area for those different soils. And then the third thing I have here, it's, it's the really important part to me, it's also the hardest part of this whole process, and that's taking those measured values and actually quantitatively linking that back to soil function so that it's outcome-based, right? Those processes and services that the soil is providing. And that's the hard part. But once you've quantified that relationship, then you can then you don't have to worry about that part anymore, then you just measure the lab data, right? And then you can do this last thing, which is interpret that for management decisions. 
which is ultimately what we're, we're really trying to do. Well, thank you, Kristen, for sharing your advice and expertise on measuring and managing soil health. And again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, TopCon Agriculture, for helping make this Strip-Till Farmer podcast series possible. I certainly look forward to your feedback on today's program, so feel free to drop me an email at jzemlicka at lessonermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2441. You can also keep up on the latest strip-till practices impacting your farm today by registering online at striptillfarmer.com for our free strip-till strategies daily e-blast. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Striptill F-A-R-M-R and on our Striptill Farmer Facebook page. And just one more reminder to join us at the 5th Annual National Strip Tillage Conference coming up July 26th and 27th in Iowa City, Iowa. Again, the 2018 event will feature a mix of general sessions, classrooms, and roundtable discussions on topics and trends specific to strip till. You can find more information at striptillconference.com. Well, I hope that you'll join us again on August 3rd for the next episode in our 2018 podcast series. And a reminder, you can still register to receive our Strip-Till Farmer print publication at striptillfarmer.com. For Kristen View, TopCon Agriculture, and our entire staff here at Strip-Till Farmer, I'm Jack Zemlicka. Thanks for listening.